Welcome. You are listening to Copland. Copland is about the life and times of our protectors and defenders, police, fire, EMS, medical trauma units, and the military. The underappreciated doing the unthinkable for the often ungrateful. I am Jay Dobbins, and I'll be your host. In each season, we will hear three episodes featuring extraordinary heroes, amazing personal experiences that will inspire and uplift you. Sometimes they might shock you. The highs and lows, the successes and the failures, told in their own words and all experienced during their personal journey of sacrifice to make the world a safer place. This is Copland. In April of 1986, eight FBI agents working in South Florida had targeted two serial murdering bank robbers for investigation. Their attempt to apprehend the suspects resulted in a shootout where 150 rounds were exchanged, deemed by some as the bloodiest day in the Bureau's history. In the shootout, Ed Morales was badly wounded, his arm nearly torn off his body with a high-caliber bullet, another wounding him in the head. With two of his partners dead and the rest incapacitated, Ed stayed in the fight and put a heroic end to the gun battle. Before he became an FBI agent, Ed served in the United States Marines. When I was a young boy in South Texas, uh, we used to sit around the TV, um, the black and white TV, uh, on Sundays, and you know, we, we'd either watch Disney or, or or something else, you know. And one of the shows that was very popular at the time was the uh, FBI uh, with Ephraim Zemblis Jr. You know, I'm, I'm sure you probably have heard this before, <laughs> but uh, my wife Liz, who's also an agent, remembers that show, and she said she was you know enthralled by it, you know, because here you had this dynamic man, you know, Inspector Erskine, you know, traveling around the country, you know. Uh, solving crimes. Any time there was a major case, you know, uh, he would show up and he would solve it in, in 45 minutes or less. <laughs> so, And to a young kid at the time, I, thought, I must have been six, eight years old, and that uh, was so fascinating to me that I said, well, it'd be neat to be an FBI agent. And uh, I kind of, uh, you know, let that seed in my mind germinate, you know, and, and eventually I, I decided that I, I would like to be a police officer at some point in my career. And then the, uh, the military service came, came up, you know, back when the draft was, was still ongoing during the Vietnam War. So uh, I got a draft notice, so I preempted that, and I, I volunteered uh, to join the Marine Corps. And uh, being around a bunch of, you know, young, you know, uh, young Jedi, young warriors, you know, it, it, it's continued to instill in me the, the desire to, to be a police officer, to serve, you know, to, you know, I don't want to sound corny, but, you know, to right any wrongs, you know, <laughs> you know, to grab, uh, grab the desperados that, were, that are out there, you know, and I used the word desperado because I was from Texas. <laughs> so Texas in the 50s and 60s, you know, <laughs> there were still some desperados out there, you know, so, uh, but uh, that was kind of, that was kind of the beginning of my, uh,
the great fortune to uh, meet uh, an FBI agent when I was assigned uh, uh, with, with the Marine Corps. I was assigned as a Marine security guard uh, to Madrid, Spain. And one of the uh, embassy employees there was a uh, an FBI agent who was called uh, the legal attaché. He had responsibility for um, uh, Spain, Portugal, and Morocco at the time. And uh, uh, I had a great respect for him. You know, he was he was quote unquote the G man. You know, in the building. You know, so uh, I mean, everybody. I mean. I mean, the FBI had so much aura, you know, and, and mystique to it that, I mean, you just had to give the guy, you know, uh, deference, you know. So, but uh, one day he pulled me aside, and uh, it's about two years after I got to know him, and I, I had uh, been going to college and stuff, and he said, hey, Ed, he said, uh, what, uh, he said, how far are you from graduating? And I said, well, I'm about a year away. He said, wow, that's good. He said, have you ever, I mean, have you thought about what you want to do when, when you uh, get out and get back to the U.S.? I said, well, I said, I, I kind of was looking into law enforcement, and he goes, well, that's good, that's good. And uh, he said, um, have you ever thought about applying for the FBI? And I was absolutely stunned and floored. Uh, I said, wow. I said, his name was Jerry. I said, wow, Jerry. I said, I never considered it. I said, I don't think I have the... Uh, education and background to, to apply for the FBI. I thought you had to be an attorney or, or uh, an accountant. And he goes, yeah, he said a lot of people have that misconception. Um, most, uh, uh, he said the, 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 the most, the easiest way for people to get hired as an FBI agent is if you are an attorney or an accountant, but they have other programs. You know, they have the, the engineering program, the scientific program, the language program, and then the the diversified program. And I said, well, what is diversified? He said, well, they hire, uh, they like, the Bureau likes to hire uh, folks from uh, other law enforcement agencies, you know, guys that have like five, six, eight years of experience in law enforcement or military people. And he said, you know, I've been watching you, and, and, and we've been interacting for the last two years. You have a language, which puts you into the language program. And he said, you could also be diversified because of your military uh, uh, experience. So I said, wow, I never really thought about it. I, and I asked him point blank, I said, you think, you think I, I'd have, have a chance? And he goes, yeah, I think you do. That's why I'm talking to you. He said, uh, how about if I get you an application and, uh, you know, get it to you, and then, uh, you know, you make copies of the application, several copies, and then rough draft your answers until you, you've refined your, your answers to, to the questions on the application. And then when you're ready, uh, give it to me, and I will send it to FBI headquarters, and uh, we'll see what happens. He said, and you can use me as a reference. You know, so I said, wow, well, that's great. Uh, so when can I apply? He said, well, you really can't apply until you graduate from college. I said, well, you know, I said, I'm going to double my efforts. You know, so uh, that's what happened. I mean, in a nutshell, you know, uh, uh, I just happened to have the great fortune to, to meet uh, <laughs> that, that FBI agent at the embassy, and, and he he kind of steered me in the right direction. He actually he opened the door and kicked my butt in, and I butt through the door. You know? So and, I mean, obviously, you know, I had to have you know my my my, my certifications and credentials, but uh, I never ever would have guessed, you know, that federal <clears throat> federal law enforcement was in my future. And uh, I mean. 
and I was so fortunate, you know. So, uh, I mean, I, I'm very thankful for that meeting. Uh, at the time, I was, I think, 20, 24. I was still, I was still uh, in, in Spain, and I uh, graduated a year later, and, and I moved back to the U.S. in 1979, and I had already sent my paperwork in. So uh, as soon as I got back to the, to the U.S., I, I uh, returned to Washington, D.C., and uh, I, I got uh, jobs. You know, I, could, I mean, I was just you know, returned to the U.S. and, and recently, uh, you know, released from the military. So I was looking for any job I could find, you know. And I, I would call FBI headquarters like every week, you know, saying, hey, what's up, what's up, what's going on? You know, so I think they got tired of my pestering them, you know, so... Uh, it, uh, by the time I, by the time all the the, uh, the processing and the paperwork and the interviews and the uh, you know the physical the background check uh, checks and, and so on, uh, I was uh, 27 when um, when I was recruited. You know, so I, and I was told that that's pretty much average the average age at, at that time back in the 70s. That's the average age of most uh, recruits. You know. Uh, it's not like a, a police force or the military where they hire people, you know, when they're 18 or 19, you know. So um, you really have to have uh, the the education and the uh, the work experience for, for to be hired uh, to be hired into a federal agency like that. Ed's early career was spent getting his feet on the ground as an investigator and quickly elevated to his assignment in espionage and terrorism squads. Through the gauntlet of uh, 
of uh, being teased and harassed and, you know, hazing, I guess they call it, you know, so, uh, and it was, uh, it was a, an interesting office. I mean, it was, it was hardworking. You know, we had uh, the FBI field office, uh, the Washington field office has a super, super huge responsibility in, in the, uh, the uh, counterintelligence, you know, with all the foreign embassies, you know, and at the time it was the Eastern Bloc, you know, the Communist Bloc versus, the, you know, the uh, NATO and all that stuff, you know, and of course you had the Chinese, uh, uh, Communist Chinese, you know, so they had uh, 50% of the programs that were run out of the field office were, were counterintelligence programs. Um, and uh, the another 30%, which I, I was news to me, the other 30% of the uh, the work at the office was uh, applicants, applicant investigations, which was, I mean, I, I, mean, I knew what they were because I, I had just gone through an applicant process, but I didn't know it was that involved, you know, so uh, since it's Washington, uh, the FBI has responsibility for investigating, uh, doing back, it, it, at least back in the day, it had responsibility for investigating uh, FBI applicate, applicants whether you're uh, for an agent or a support employee or a sp some specialized task. Judges, assistant United States attorneys and U.S. attorneys, um, special appointees by the White House, White House staff, you know, um, and uh, any other special uh, processing. Like you see, like the, uh, I think people will, will, will remember the Mueller uh, investigation. Those, those attorneys have to be uh, vetted you know, investigated to make sure that uh, they're not uh, uh, some foreign control spy or, you know, you, you know, you know the drill, you know. Uh, so all of those special uh, applicants have to be uh, investigated. And the majority of the investigations happen in Washington, D.C. I mean, obviously, if you're from Los Angeles, you know, someone, someone in Los Angeles is going to go interview your neighbors or your school or, or your, your co-workers, you know, from, from whatever uh, employment you had out there. But the majority, you know, the, the records checks and, the, and, and all the other, you know, you know uh, bells and whistles and stuff, you know, are all in Washington, D.C. So that, that's 30 percent. And the, the remaining 20 percent was criminal investigations in, in the Washington field office which was everything else, you know, bank robberies, fraud, you know, inter interstate transportation of stolen property, fugitives, bank robberies, everything else. So as a new agent, you know, I showed up, you know, at the field office, and I'm thinking, hey, man, I can't wait to, to run my first bank robbery, you know, investigation. And then that's when I hit a, a, a stone wall, not a, a stone wall, I hit a mountain, <laughs> pointing, you know, head on, and they said, nope, nope, you're a new agent, you know, you have to work applicants. I said, you've got to be kidding me. So for like the first year that the, all the new agents that, that get there have to work uh, with, uh, applicant investigations because the, the, the demand was so high. You know, so I was actually assigned, <laughs> I was actually assigned, you know, with my, my five other uh, 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 classmates to what was called the, the bank robbery applicant squad and I'm thinking well at least at least it's got bank robbery on it you know so we showed up you know and of course all the old the old dogs you know the old gumshoes you know they they work the bank robberies and they wouldn't touch an applicant case with a 10-foot pole you know so as the new guys you know they dumped all those crappy cases on us you know just boom you know I had like I don't know 30 applicant cases 
and you had to run to every single lead, you know, go go down and interview this neighborhood. You know, he said he lived in this neighborhood for three days. You have to go check, see if anybody remembers him. Or go uh, go to this employment. He said he worked as a clerk, you know, there in, in uh, 1942. You know, <laughs> you know, those types of love leads, you know, it's like, oh, my God. But I was told that it was done for a reason. You know, it's, hey, new age is coming into the city. You know, we don't want to, you know, burden them with any, uh, with any, uh,
how to work the cases, you know. So, and as a sidebar, you know, I, the the local police, you know, used to be so mad at us, you know, because it's like, well, why don't you tell us what you're doing, you know? And and the FBI still gets that today, I know, you know. But it's like, dude, I mean, I can't tell you, you know, we're doing a surveillance, you know, we're following these people, you know, we're we're watching this house, but we can't tell you, you know, what we're doing. It's like, why not? And and they don't understand, you know, that these counterintelligence sources. Uh, are highly classified. I mean, sometimes it's eyes only. I mean, I mean, you know, maybe not quite that level, you know, but it was like very closely kept secrets. You know, they, they came from uh, from other government agencies, intelligence agencies, from from uh, different techniques that the uh, the government was working. You know, which I won't get into, but you can just let your mind run. You know, involving satellites and other other stuff <laughs> like that. You know, so we were getting information on one hand. You know about this highly classified technique and then we're running on the streets of uh, Washington DC or Miami or wherever it was you know looking for su uh, suspected terrorists you know and you really couldn't share that with the local cops because you know they weren't they, they just weren't cleared you know sometimes I don't think even I was cleared for the stuff I was getting you know? so it was that sensitive you know so but it was very interesting and it, and it, it uh, really uh, really rounded out my started to round out my my uh, experiences and career and uh, I don't know if you recall this or not, or whether your audience recalls it or, or not, but back in the, in the late 70s and the early 80s, that was the era when the, um, that was towards the end of the uh, Weather Underground. You know, those, those were vicious people. You know, they, they, uh, um, they bombed uh, several government offices like the, uh, uh, one of those uh, recruiting offices, you know, the ROTC and the, uh, you know, the recruiting offices on, on campuses and stuff, they, they, they set bombs at some of these locations. And they were just anti-American. They were against the war in Vietnam and all this other stuff, you know. So the Weather Underground was kind of phasing out at the time. And then a new organization came up. Uh, actually, several organizations came up. The, the May 19th uh, organization, they, they were kind of like the offs offspring uh, of the Weather Underground. And then there were some other uh, groups that were coming up, the uh, the Black Liberation Army, the Black Panthers. Um, there are so many different groups that, that were coming up in the in the 80s. And um, as, as luck would have it, I, I ended up working the, the terrorism uh, violation in D.C., domestic and international. And we had a lot of bombings on the East Coast back during that time frame. Uh, I worked on a case... Um, where there were approximately 20, 22 bombings between New York and Washington, D.C., and, and every place in between. And it just so happened that uh, two of the bombings were at the, uh, at, the, uh, Navy, at the Navy Yard in Washington, and the other one was at the uh, Fort McNair, where the uh, National War College is located. And the third one, the biggie, you know, the, the mother of all bombings, is, as, as Saddam would say, um, was at the U.S. Capitol. Yeah, I remember that November 11th. I think it was November. I think it was November 11th, 1983. Uh, someone snuck a, a a packet into the into the Congress and set off a bomb outside the Senate chambers at about 10 p.m. And uh, nobody was hurt, thankfully, but it blew the crap out of that area. Of course. 
course, I was home, you know, in bed by then, you know, and uh, I got a call saying, hey, you got to come in. A bomb went off at the Capitol. I was stunned. I'm thinking, holy cow, you know. So I, I, I drove up to the Capitol. That's back when you could actually get close to the Capitol, <laughs> you know, before all the security yeah, went into, into play, you know. So, but I mean, I, I uh, went up there. I literally just walked up, you know, and I showed my badge and they let me in. And uh, I, I investigated the scene, and, and of course, you know, we had a typical propaganda, you know, you know, that someone someone called the Washington Post, hey, there's a tape, uh, a, a an audio tape uh, underneath the phone booth at this location, so the Washington Post would send somebody out there, a runner, to go out there, look for the tape, and they'd find a tape, and then they'd play it, you know, and they'd get some message, some generic message, you know, U.S. out of El Salvador, you know, U.S. imperialism pigs, you know, free, you know, San Juan, Puerto Rico, you know, the Black Liberation Army and, and the May 19th group, you know, uh, blah, blah, blah. It's just all propaganda, you know. So that was uh, that was very interesting, very interesting work. And then uh, I, I did that for, oh, God, almost, uh, almost five years, actually four and a half years, and then I was transferred to Miami in 1985. Ed landed an assignment in Miami when violence there was at an all-time high. His fluency in Spanish put him on the front lines. My transfer to Miami was because of the language. You know, I, I spoke Spanish, and I used my Spanish in Washington a lot, a lot. You know, I, again, I don't know if your audience remembers, but back in the early 80s, you know, that's when the, the Sandinistas, the Nicaraguan Sandinistas took over Nicaragua and uh El Salvador was going through uh, growing pains. Uh, you know, I, I don't know if anybody remembers some guy named uh, a Colonel, Colonel, Colonel. What was his name? Oh yeah, Ollie North. <laughs> you know, giving supposedly accused of giving guns to the right wing uh, military people down there. So it was just very involved. I mean, it was like it was like uh, like a James Bond novel. I mean, uh, we had people. You know, coming and going from Central America, you know, and, and pro-American and anti-American people, and just there was a lot of stuff, and uh, there were so many. Uh, again, people probably don't remember. They killed some uh, some nuns, some uh, some you know religious nuns down there, and uh, of course uh, everybody blamed the right wing, you know, death squads, and then they killed some businessmen. Down there, some American businessmen down there, and of course everybody everybody blamed the, the left wing Sandinista, you know, death squad. So it was just back and forth, back and forth, and that's not even counting, you know, all, all the the locals that were being killed, you know. But whenever you kill an American abroad, you know, people, you know, the president and Congress kind of gets upset, you know. So so we were investigating those types of cases too, you know. But uh, so I was using my Spanish a great deal up here. A lot of people were were. Uh, trying to flee, you know, they were fleeing the left-wing death squads and the right-wing death squads and just back and forth, you know, so so uh, I, I was using my language, you know, which is the Bureau hired me under the language program, you know, so it, it came in very handy, but uh, lo and behold, you know, Miami and, and places like San Juan, Miami, and uh, places along the border also needed a linguist, you know, a Spanish-speaking agent, so I just, my, my, my number happened to come up, you know, and uh, I was transferred down in 85, you know, which is good because I was in the process of, uh, I was dating this young lady down there, uh, Liz, Elizabeth Olton, ended up being my, my wife, you know, so, uh, which is good, you know, it, it made long distance uh, dating easier. <laughs> Since I, she was in Miami and I was in, I was in Washington, so that 
kind of solved a big problem for me and her, you know. So, <laughs> but I, I was transferred down there. Uh, I, I actually got. I, I think I actually left on April fifteenth. You know, I know that date. That rings a bell too, right? Taxes, maybe. <laughs> In the fall of nineteen eighty-five, two down-on-their-luck ex-vets began a bank robbery and murder spree that initially targeted armored cars. It was um, October, to be exact. Um, and uh, I, I was I remember this because it was, I mean, I remember like it was yesterday. Uh, I was sitting in the squad area, and there was only three of us left. It was lunchtime, and uh, three of the young the young warriors, the young bucks, were in the, um, in the squad area. It was myself, Jerry Dove, and uh, another agent, another young warrior from uh, San Antonio. He was a San Antonio police officer and came over to the, to the FBI. Al, Albert Ortiz, uh, Al Ortiz, you know, we, everybody called him Big Al. So we were sitting in the squad area and, uh, you know, everybody else had gone to lunch and you know, we were just doing paper, paperwork, you know, doing you know, reports and stuff like that. So a call comes over the intercom saying, attention, you know, all, all agents, you know, there's been a... A, a red box robbery uh, at the uh, Steak and Ale restaurant on uh, 97th and uh, 97th Avenue and Kendall Drive, and, uh, and it was everybody. I mean, I guess you had to be, uh, you know, I don't want to sound corny, but red box is, is kind of a lingo or, or you know a, a, a specialized term, you know. It, it doesn't take a genius to figure it out, you know. Uh, Wells Fargo armored trucks are painted red, you know. So, you know, so when they said it, there's been a red box robbery, everybody knew it was an armored truck of some kind. You know, it, it, it could have been Wells Fargo, it could have been something else. But even the Brinks trucks, which were gray, we call them red boxes. You know, so it just simplified things. You know, so the three of us were sitting in in the squad area, and uh, we only had one car between us. So. And it happened to be my car, so so I said, "Hey, let's go. Nobody else is here, you know." And of course, the call goes out in the office, but it also goes out uh, on the radio. So uh, we jumped on the, in my car. It was Al, uh, Jerry, and myself jumped in the, in, the, in the car, and we sped down into South uh, Miami at about 100 miles an hour where we could. You know, we we tried to take all the highways we could to get down there, just about 30 miles from the office to, to that location. So uh, we, we, uh, we uh, are, you know, going as fast as we can. We get down there, and uh, it was uh, your typical robbery. I mean, because, I mean, I had been to several robberies and armored truck robberies before, but this one would, would uh, start to become the, the first uh, robbery in, 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 a, in a different group, in, in dollars 
and the, and the uh, delivery, uh, the, the courier's uh, bag. Uh, they got him coming out of, of the, uh, the restaurant, the steak and ale restaurant, and um, he um, he only had twenty eight uh, twenty eight hundred or three thousand dollars in his possession when they when they accosted him. And they, they took his gun, they knocked him on the head, knocked him down, and then they walked him up to the uh, to the uh, driver. And the, the courier had a gun in his ear saying, hey, you know, they said, hey, driver, open the door. We're going to kill your friend, you know, your buddy, your partner. And I don't know if people know this, but what what are what are the standing orders for a courier for drivers like that? The, you know, I don't know whether your audience knows that or not, but they are not to open the door, period, you know. As a matter of fact, you know, the driver engaged the uh, the uh, the truck and, and, and drive, and he drove away. <laughs> and he left his partner standing in the parking lot with uh, two masked men and a gun in his ear. And I interviewed the the courier after the fact, you know, and he said, "Oh my God!" He said, "I," I said, "I almost." wet myself, you know, because uh, I, I, I was begging for my life. I said, don't kill me. Please don't kill me. He's stupid. He should have opened the door. But he, he knew the policy. He knew that he, that the, the driver was not going to open the door, period, you know. So they weren't happy about that. They hit him on the head, knocked him down a second time. And then the one with the rifle opened up um, uh, with uh, an assault rifle on, on the back of the truck. You know, and I don't care what you're shooting, you know, I mean, uh, an armored truck is called armored for a reason, you know, those rifle bullets didn't penetrate, they probably didn't even scratch the paint, you know, so uh, they ran back to their car, uh, and uh, they they jump in the car, and, and they start driving out of the parking lot, and onto uh, 97th Avenue to head south, and the interesting part of this whole scenario was that as they're driving out of the parking lot, for some reason, these uh, these two you know, crazies, you know, uh, threw out two smoke grenades, like military-grade uh, smoke grenades. They popped smoke and threw it, you know, into the parking lot as they drove away, and then they threw a second one uh, about 100 feet away down the road. And, and even even by Miami standards, I mean, Miami's a crazy place. Even by Miami standards, that was pretty unusual. <laughs> so... You know, we knew we knew these guys were were definitely new at, at this. You know, so um, and that is the first actual robbery that we can we can uh, uh, forensically link to the two uh, the two bank robbers, uh, Platt and Maddox. Michael Lee Platt and William Russell Maddox had avoided identification and eluded the police when they made a mistake that would put Ed and his team. On their trail, we got our first big break uh, because up until that time, they were phantoms. I mean, I tell people, I say, hey, you know what? They were ruthless. They were cold-blooded, you know, and they were absolutely ruthless. You know, at, at the end of the investigation, we found out how many people they had killed, how many people had disappeared, had you know, for, for their cars. You know, they. Uh, I think there was a total of like. Three people that had been killed or disappeared, and their cars are missing. And and uh, two of those cars ended up being used in, in the uh, getaway cars for, for these two robbers. And then they killed uh, a couple of other. Um, uh, they killed a uh, security guard, so they killed at least three or four people. You know, and that's in the span of like five months, six months. You know, but up until we got another big break, we had no clue. You know, uh, everybody that had ever been a victim of these guys. 
stories. They couldn't tell us whether these guys were, were black, white, or, or green, you know. Uh, everybody kept saying they were wearing ski masks, you know, and they were wearing gloves and stuff. And, of course, everybody's looking at those big assault rifles and, and shotguns and and, and uh, revolvers that they had in their hand, you know. So, I mean, you know, they were, they were pretty vicious. Sometimes they'd actually, you know, you know, uh, like movie style, walk into a bank, you know, at noon and, and fire a couple of shots into the ceiling, you know, and, and boom, boom, you know, everybody down on the floor, you know, typical... Hollywood style robbery, you know. So most people, you know, were just terrified, frightened for their lives, you know. And and they they didn't know whether they were, like I said, black, white, or green, you know. So and it wasn't until we got uh, uh, until March twelfth, nineteen eighty six, that we got a huge break that we were uh, able to identify who these guys were, or at least start to identify who they were. Uh, there was a young man who had the uh, misfortune of being out in the Everglades to, uh, target practice which is a normal area, you know, there's, there's a big uh, field out there, a uh, clearing out there where people, you know, could, could drive their cars and, and go shoot without, you know, being molested or, or you know, uh, shooting whatever gun they, they had, whether it's a, an illegal machine gun or, or whatever, you know. So uh, uh, this guy's name was uh, Jose Calazo. He had the misfortune of being out there target, target practicing, and then uh, he survived the... Uh, he told us that when he was after target practicing, he, he saw a pickup truck driving into the same clearing that he was at. You know, was, the clearing was as big as a football field, so, I mean, it wasn't unusual. Uh, you could have two or three or four different groups out there shooting in different directions with no problem. So he saw the pickup truck. He acknowledged them. They, they kind of nodded back, you know, and he continued shooting in his direction. He said after about five or ten minutes, you know, he felt something, you know, felt odd. You know, he felt something like kind of like leery and he turned around you know and he saw these two guys that were standing behind him they were they were one was aiming a rifle at him the other one was aiming a revolver at him and he goes oh shit you know <laughs> so they said hey listen buddy you know what's up you know what's going on you know so they had the normal you know robber victim interchange <laughs> exchange you know so he said hey man take take my car take my wallet uh, take the guns it just don't hurt me and they said yes yes we're going to do all that thank you so he he gave up the he gave up his uh, his gear and his car and then he said he got a real bad feeling when when uh, the one with the revolver got real close to him and said turn around and walk towards that lake and he said oh my god he said he knew he was a dead man at that point in time you know so he said hey I got nothing to lose you know so he kind of was dragging his feet you know to, you know met, you know getting to the lake he was walking slow and, and that made the uh, the, the guy uh, with the revolver stick his revolver in his back again, kind of like nudging him with encouragement, you know. And um, at that point, he said he, he decided to turn around, you know, did that uh, that move that law enforcement officers are always taught, you know, like, you know, move your body, you know, move your arm to, to, to get the weapon off your, off your uh, uh, center mass, you know. And uh, it worked for him, you know, and um, he, they started fighting over the revolver. You know, make a long story short, they, he was shot the... Uh, Calazo, Jose Calazo was shot and left for dead. They took his uh, his car and, and his weapons, you know. And it, it turns out that uh, the next day, uh, Ben Grogan saw a newspaper clipping in, in, uh, in, the, in the Herald and said that uh, the, uh, there had been a victim of a robbery out in the, uh, at the Rock Pit area in Miami. And he slams his hand on, on the desk. 
desk. He says, hey, I guarantee you we're going to see this guy's car, you know, uh, as part of our robberies. The next robbery getaway car is going to be this guy's car. And, of course, being the uh, professional agents that we were, we all laughed at him. We said, oh, Ben, you're full of crap, Ben. You know, so, but we sent uh, Ben Ben Grogan uh, went out there with uh, uh, Steve Warner, and they interviewed Jose Calazzo at the Baptist, uh, South Baptist Hospital. And we got uh, a, a description of two white males, a pickup truck, and his, <clears throat> excuse me, his Monte Carlo. Uh, description of his Monte Carlo with the uh, the tag, you know, as uh, a stolen car, and that he was shot and left for dead on the 12th of March, and on the 19th of March, exactly one week later, uh, a law enforcement witness uh, saw two males coming out of the Barnett Bank on South Dixie Highway and 136th Street, uh, jump into a, a black car. Uh, and get away, you know, start driving away. Um, and that witness happened to be a law enforcement officer, uh, and a customs officer, and uh, he uh, got the tag off the uh, off the car, and it was the same tag to uh, Jose Calazzo's uh, Monte Carlo. So we had a direct link at that point in time. We knew we were dealing with two white males. Uh, we had, you know, an approximate age. You know, they were about six one, six two, maybe. Uh, about 200 pounds. So we had the description of the Monte Carlo. We had the description of the you know, white pickup truck, and we had a, a, uh, a police composite uh, drawing uh, of what they looked like. So on the morning of April 11th, you know, we set out on a, on a surveillance to uh, just kind of like uh, it's a long shot um, to see if we could find these guys. Now. Uh, when, when I tell this story, when I told this story, people thought I was, you know, trying to cover something up, uh, c- cover something up. And I'm thinking, what, 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 what are you guys doing? I don't understand what are you, what you're talking about. He said, well, why were you out there? You, sh- you probably had some information, right? Absolutely not. We had no information. It's, it's what I would call intuitive policing. Our supervisor, Gordon McNeil, uh, was talking with uh, the, the case agent. Uh, ben Grogan, and they they were sitting around in a, at lunchtime, and and, and uh, Supervisor McNeil asks Ben Grogan, he says, "Hey, how about we set up a surveillance tomorrow?" And Ben was shocked. He says, "Sure. I mean, I, I I'll use all the help I can get, uh, Gordon." He said, "Why? What do you got?" He said, what, 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 "What's going on?" He said, "You know what, Ben? It's been three weeks since they hit hit a bank." The last time they hit the bank, they only got uh, $8,000, so it wasn't a big haul for them because uh, in the previous uh, robberies, they had gotten forty, fifty thousand dollars $50,000 at a pop, you know. And back in the 80s, that was like big money, you know, that was a lot of money. So uh, Gordon said, uh, Ben, they only got $8,000 last time. It's been three weeks, and according to the uh, statistics, the statistics that we had, on the uh, on the days of the week, they robbed uh, banks on Friday, fifty percent of the time. You know, so fifty. You know, and the next day, April eleventh, was a Friday. So you know, uh, Gordon said, "Hey, tomorrow's Friday. It's been three weeks since they hit, and the last time they hit, they only got eight thousand dollars. I think they're due. I have a hunch, and that's exactly what he, he told." Uh, 
some sort of a, a surveillance out there, you know, kind of like a stationary, a combination of stationary rolling patrols uh, on South Dixie Highway, you know, from uh, about 88th Street to about 184th Street, because the majority, like, yeah, 99% of all the robberies had happened on, uh, on the South Dixie Highway, or also known as US-1. So that is what led to the, um, to the surveillance. Okay, so some people say, well, you had information and you weren't prepared. No, we had no information. I mean, we, we were prepared. We were always prepared, you know. But, again, people say, hey, you know, you guys weren't as prepared as you should have been. It's like, duh. You know, <laughs> you know hindsight is twenty twenty. you know. Uh, and I, told, I, I tell people, I said, hey, I was armed and every other agent out there was armed with everything that was legally allowed that we were legally allowed to carry by law. Okay, and I know people, there's people that talk, talk, you know, and then, you know, but everybody knows that, you know, you're not gonna, you're not gonna do something stupid, you know, like carry an, an unauthorized weapon or carry unauthorized ammunition, and then you get involved in something and you end up losing your job for being stupid. I mean, you know, you, you, you work with the tools that the, uh, the public and the government give you. And that's exactly what we had. We were all, all armed with, with uh, everything we were legally armed to carry. And uh, I was former military, and I knew how to use uh, an M14 and an M16 and, and a semi-automatic pistol, and I also had some training in the FBI. But I was not a SWAT member, okay? And in the FBI, only SWAT members were allowed to carry semi-automatic pistols and automatic rifles and, and machine guns, okay? Even though I, I know how to use them, I knew how to use them at the time, I was not legally allowed to carry it. So, I mean, I, I couldn't carry a weapon like that. So um, so everybody was armed and, and, and set to go with everything they were legally allowed to carry. A long-shot operational plan for surveillance of the suspect's area of activity was set, and each of the FBI agents was given a role. Their mission? Locate confront and arrest the murderers so on the morning of april 11th uh, we uh had a, a team meeting in south miami uh, at about 8:45. we got the briefing you know that we all knew we got the the uh, the uh, composite uh, drawings of the two robbers we got the description of the stolen monte carlo we got a description of the white pickup truck so you know everything was was set you know was pretty much uh, out there. All the information we had was out there. So the next thing that happened was everybody broke up in the teams. You know, we decided, hey, where do we want to set teams? Where's our little sub sub areas that you know? Because we have like a five mile uh, area to cover. So where where do we want? I mean, we all can't be at one location. You know, so uh, you know, uh, so it was decided. Okay, this would be a home home. Uh, base or, you know, this will be your home base, this will be your, so we had four different areas along a five-mile area, and uh, we had 14 agents um, assigned to the surveillance that morning, and we split those 14 agents up into, into little teams, you know, so um, when it, my area had three agents, uh, the area south of me had five agents, because there were two banks there. And then the the other two areas south of that had, each had three agents, you know. So that was a that was a fair a fair balance, you know. Approximately three agents per location, you know. And the idea was to be in the area to respond to a, a bank robbery call or to be in a position to observe 
you know, the Monte Carlo driving into a parking lot or driving by and, um, you know, see if we could respond uh, to, to the incident, preferably before it happened. But uh, if we couldn't stop it before it happened, then, you know, the, the, the mission was to let it happen, not, not interfere in the middle of a robbery with innocent civilians, you know, being, you know, having weapons pointed at them and then, you know, you might get someone killed by accident or then you go into a hostage situation, you know, so we, we didn't want that. So it was decided, hey, if you can stop them before it starts, fine. If you can't, let them go in, finish, and then when they come out, then we can we can do our thing. You know, so, uh, you know, everybody had their instructions, you know, so pretty much, you know. So uh, after the meeting, you know, we, we went our separate ways to, you know, find our, our locations, you know, scout out the area. You know, where, where are the entrances to the parking lot to the bank? Where are the bank uh, doors? You know, what time do they open? Uh, um, so surprisingly, not, not all banks open at the same time. You know, some banks open, you know, depending on where they're located. Some banks opened at 8.30, others at 9, some others opened at 9.30. So we were still floating around, you know, setting up. The surveillance plan worked, and the FBI team spotted their suspects. Uh, and at approximately 9.25 a.m., Ben, uh, John Hanlon and I are sitting in our car, you know, uh, sipping our coffee. We're watching our bank. Our partner, C. Warner, had gone to uh, to the gas station to, to get some some uh, gas for his car. He came back on the air and he said, hey, I'm going to go check with the bank manager at the bank to see if she can tell me when armored truck deliveries are coming in today. So we said, okay, fine. He went to the bank and he said, okay, I'm at the bank. I'm going to go out of service now. And he went out of service. And about five seconds after he went out of service, uh, Ben uh, Grogan called on the radio. <laughs> Those words are, are burned into my brain. Attention, all units. We're behind a black vehicle, a four-door, Florida tag, NTJ891. And I was so shocked. I was like, oh, my God, he's behind the stolen car. You know, an exact description of Black Monte Carlo NTJ891. And I could not believe it. I mean, I, I, I'm, several thoughts went through my mind. I'm thinking, are these guys that stupid not to even change the tag on the car? And then I thought, no, they can't be that stupid because they're, they've, been, they've been pretty ruthless so far, you know. I said, maybe they just don't care. Maybe it's just like in your face. Here we are, you know, we're not even going to change the tag on the car and come and get us. It was like I was stunned. And uh, unbeknownst to me at the time, what had happened is that uh, at 136th Street, where, where uh, the uh, location where we had five agents assigned uh, to, to, that, to, to the area there, there were two banks. And each one of those banks had been, had been robbed before. Okay, so that's why we—that's another reason we had five agents in that area. And uh, this is speculation on my part, but uh, when Ben Grogan called out, "Attention, all units! We're behind the, the Black Monte Carlo," he was already north of my location. He was north of my location by like six blocks. So he was supposed to be six blocks south of me. Okay, so he was 12 blocks out of, out of position. 
so I'm thinking to myself, okay, how, how did this happen? And it's only speculation on our part because uh, the witnesses, all four witnesses are dead. Okay, nobody knew it at the time, you know, but Ben Grogan and Jerry Dove would end up being killed, and then the two bank robbers that they were following at that point would end up being dead. So all the witnesses that, that, that could tell us what happened are dead. So that's why I say it's speculation on, on, on our part, because Ben was assigned to 136th Street, and we speculate that the, the bank robbers, the, 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 the perpetrators, drove into the parking lot of that area where the uh, Ben and Jerry and, and the other agents were assigned, also containing two banks. They drove into that parking lot. They saw that a uh, marked unit was parked in front of one of the banks as extra security. So, you know, obviously you don't want to rob a bank with two cops sitting in, <laughs> in a marked car in front of the bank. You know, I mean, that's, that's you know, a bad career choice. You know, so... Uh, they probably saw the marked unit. They circled around the parking lot, you know, did a loop maybe. And then at that point in time, we speculate that Ben and Jerry saw a black vehicle and moving through the parking lot, you know, and do a loop. And then they drove out of the parking lot back to US-1 and turned north. Okay. Speculation is that Ben and Jerry, you know, didn't, couldn't get the tag on the car, you know, they probably had a good feeling, you know, it's, it's, uh, the black Monte Carlo, a black car and, uh, you know, two guys in it and, you know, Hey, oh, you know, we got two out of three, you know, we need to verify the tag. And, and, uh, they probably just decided, Hey, let's follow that black car. You know, why, why call it out? You know, I mean, you know, why cause a, a fuss if you don't know what, you know, what it is, you know, until when you verify what it is and you call it out. Okay. So they went from 136th street. Okay. To about 120th street or 120, 24th street, which is 12 blocks north I mean, of their location before they could, they could catch up with the car and verify the tag. So, again, that's speculation on our part because all the witnesses are dead. But that's how they ended up, you know, way out of position, northbound on US-1. They had already passed our, 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 our position. So they were six blocks north of us, you know. So uh, we, uh, John Hanlon was driving, you know, we decided, hey, you know, let's get, let's get going. You know, let's go yeah, catch up to them and, and lend a hand. So we went northbound. Uh, on, on uh, US-1, and it was still kind of late rush hour traffic, so there was a lot of traffic. And uh, the rest is pretty much uh, just fake. Uh, they got up to 117th Street, turned right. Uh, again, don't know why. They just decided that 117th Street was uh, the right place for them to turn. And when they turned, obviously by that time, it was Ben Grogan's car behind them. Our car was behind him. And then there was a, a third FBI car behind us. There was three FBI cars with five agents, you know, two, two, and one agents in the cars. So they turned on 117th, and when they went uh, eastbound, they got to uh, 81st Avenue, which is like a, a block away. They turned right again, and then there was absolutely no traffic. It was the stolen car and three FBI cars behind them. And at that point in time, they, they stopped moving in a normal, at a normal pace. They, they kind of slowed down to see what's going on. You know, they were, we could see them looking in their mirrors, you know, and they went down at like 10 miles an hour, you know, 
know they know we're on them. They know someone's on them. They don't know who, you know. So they they went down to the end of the block, turned right on 120th Street, and again they're going, you know, about 10 miles an hour. And my fear was that they would get back to US one. And once we got onto the big highway, they would have a lot more room to run, you know, uh, at, at high speed, you know. So I was afraid, you know, I was kind of like hoping that Ben would call out, you know, let's do a felony car stop before they got to, to uh, the highway. Because then, you know, you'd lose total control. Then, you know, people, you know, you're speeding down the highway, you know, you could get up to speeds, or, you know, God knows, I mean, depending on how many cars are out there, you could, you could get a car up to, you know, 60, 80 miles an hour and still have a lot of traffic in the way. And if there's shooting from a car, I mean, you know, God knows where these bullets are going to go, you know, so as, again, luck and fate would have it, they did not go to the highway. They turned left on 82nd Avenue. Okay, and that was, that was uh, again, uh, extremely fortunate because when they, they turned left on the 82nd Avenue, uh, that's when Ben Grogan said, okay, let's do this felony car stop. Let's do it. And uh, that was the signal. You know, at, at that point, uh, by that point, we had the three FBI cars and then Gordon McNeil had, had caught up with us. So that was four FBI cars that, uh, that had caught up. You know, and uh, when they turned left to go south on uh, 82nd Avenue, at that point they started, you know, they weren't going 10 miles an hour anymore. They started, you could hear the RPMs and the cars just like, boom, like race cars, you know. So Ben Grogan shoots out in front of them and to try to block them from speeding away, and then we kind of pull up to their left side and trying to force them off to the right uh, side of the, of the street because there was a shopping center there, and the shopping center had a, this uh, cinder block wall, you know, around around the back of it. So that would be a good backdrop if you had to get, in, get involved in a, into a shootout. You know, we 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 would be shooting towards a, a cement wall, so we wouldn't have to worry about secondary targets, you know. So, but it was not to be because the um, the uh, their attempt to escape, you know, uh, in it. We lost all control, you know, I mean, because there, there's two types of car stops. There's a compliance stop, and then there's a non-compliance stop. This became a non-compliance stop right away when, when they started trying to speed away to escape. And then what happened uh, next was a series of crashes, you know. They, they would they crash into Ben Grogan's car trying to trying to get him out of the way, and then they, they, they rammed us to the left trying to push us out of the way, and then we were just, you know, back and forth blocking, you know, Trying to trying to force them to slow down. Okay, so uh, you know it's hard it's hard to control another driver, you know, when he he doesn't want to stop, you know. So um, that went on for it seemed like a minute, but in reality, it's probably only about you know fifteen or twenty seconds of, of ramming back and forth. And uh, at, at some point in time, I don't know how it happened. I mean, I, 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 it's been explained to me, but we lost all contact with the car. We, I, one second, I'm looking at the, at the driver of, of the stolen Monte Carlo, and I'm trying to bring my gun up, my shotgun up, to, to point at him. And the next thing I know, we're slamming into a, a, the concrete wall. Okay, so I'm thinking, what the heck happened? You know, so uh, we uh, we lost all resistance. You know, because we were pushing the cars. 
the Stolen Money Caller and our car were being were pushing against each other, and we lost all contact with the car, and then we were slingshot off to the right, and we slammed into a wall, you know. So, uh, and then they were slingshot to the left, and they uh, Richard Menazzi, who was behind us, saw them trying to make a U-turn, so he rams them, trying to prevent them from finishing the U-turn, manages to slow them down, but then they continued going into the uh, the yard. Uh, in front of the house that was there, and he c- continued to pursue them, and then ran them a second time. Eventually, ran them off the road into a driveway at uh, 182nd. Uh, I think it was one one two two zero one 82nd Avenue, and uh, that was that was where they were pinned, you know, and. Uh, uh, it got real quiet, real quiet after uh, after a few seconds, you know, because before, you know, it was, you know, screeching metal, you know, uh, cars crashing, you know, and RPMs going back and forth and, you know, people trying to talk on the radio. And uh, it, it was like going through a, a long, drawn-out car crash. I mean, because the, the cars hitting each other and scratching metal, you know, and, and back and forth. And then we hit, when we hit the, the concrete wall, you know, we went boom, you know. And, I mean, we came to a, a sudden stop, you know, and just, you know, I think we were going, I don't know, 35, 40 miles an hour when we hit the, the concrete wall. Under normal circumstances, I, I wasn't wearing my seatbelt. Under normal circumstances, I probably would have been injured in that crash. But I was so hyped up, so so, uh, uh, you know, the, the fight or flight syndrome hits, you know, your body it dumps all those chemicals into your system, you know, endorphins and adrenaline and everything else, you know. So uh, I uh, I absorbed that, that crash with my arms on the windshield. It was like an accordion, you know, like, wing, you know. <laughs> so, I mean, like I said, under normal circumstances, I probably would have smashed my face up against the windshield like a bug, you know. But uh, it, it was just amazing you know and I, I i put my hands up absorbed the shock and then reached down grabbed the shotgun opened the door and i stepped out to, to look for the for the bad guys and um like i said it was after all the crashing and the uh, and the bang and the, and the rpms it was deathly quiet totally silent <laughs> and uh as i'm stepping out the door I, I heard some yelling behind me, and that's, that's, that's how I knew that they were behind me. What happened next was a true demonstration of heroism. And uh, I heard something FBI, you know, something like that, and then the next thing I heard was just gunfire. Boom, 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 boom. So it, it started going. And I'm thinking, oh, shit, you know. And I, as soon as I got out of my car, I started looking behind me, and I, I assessed the situation. And I, I, based on, on what I saw, uh, uh, Ben Grogan and Jerry Dove were shooting in a northerly direction. And I, I saw over towards the left, uh, Gordon McNeil was shooting in an easterly direction. So I said, okay, I mean, that gives me a reference point. Wherever those two lines intersect, that's probably where the bad guys are. You know, because I, I couldn't see them. They were parked, and it was a jumble of cars. It looked like it looked like a, a, a parking lot. It really wasn't. It was only, uh, it was like uh, six cars, two civilian cars, 
Monte Carlo and three FBI cars. But to me, it, uh, you know, just instantly, you know, coming up like that and assessing, it looked like there was a total, it was a huge parking lot going on there, you know. So, um, so I'm trying to figure out where are they, you know. And again, you know, based on, on I guess, logic, you know, wherever Ben, Ben and Jerry were shooting, and wherever Gordon was shooting, you know, they were like shooting into an X, like an, an X. You know, wherever the, the the X intersected, wherever those two lines intersected, uh, that was probably where the bad guys were. So that's where I figured they were. So I start running across the street to uh, get closer uh, to the the incident, you know, to, to the subjects. And uh, as I was going across the street, I assessed, uh, you know, the, the situation. I said, okay, McNeil is off to, to the left by himself. Ben and Jerry are to the right. I saw John Hanlon to, to my to my right, running towards Ben and Jerry's car, and I was running to Ben and Jerry's car to the rear of Ben and Jerry's car. And I'm I'm thinking to myself, well, you know, that'll put four agents on the right, and only one agent on the left. So I said that that kind of makes that spot to the left of the weak spot. So I decided halfway across the street, I decided to veer to the left and go around uh, a car that was in the way, which ended up being McNeil's car, and uh, go over to where Gordon was, was crouched behind uh, one of the FBI cars to reinforce him. And my intention was to reinforce him to the left side of his position. And, um, you know, by this time, I mean, all hell broke loose. I mean, there was gunfire from the agents and gunfire from, from somewhere in the jumble of cars. I really couldn't tell exactly where the band guys were, but I knew they were somewhere in, in, in the pile of cars that had, that had crashed there. So I was just trying to get across the street and to a point of cover as, as quickly as possible. But that uh, that was not to happen, obviously. Uh, well, not obviously, but it was just not to happen. I, I uh, didn't quite make it to cover uh, before I was shot. The, uh, the, uh, the 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 main weapon, you know, the 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 deadly weapon for us was the Mini 14. That fires an M16. I don't know if your re, uh, audience knows. I'm sure 99% of them know what an M16 round is. It's an assault rifle uh, round uh, fired from a uh, uh, a knockoff, I guess, or a, you know, a copy of a, the old World War II carbine, you know. But uh, it's 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 called a mini 14, uh, but it fires the M16 round. You know, uh, that is the weapon that injured uh, all the agents. You know, I mean it, that's a, a tribute to the uh, not not so much the weapon, but the the caliber of the weapon. I mean the caliber of the round. You know, the the actual bullet itself. You know that that uh, and it's high velocity. It's a small round. I mean it's like a two to three caliber. Uh, but man, the velocity is, is a killer. It's 3,000, 3,000, you know, 3,200 feet per second. And uh, if, if it hits you head on, boy, it's, I mean, it's, it's going to ruin your health record. You know, I mean, it ruined my health record. <laughs> you know, as I was trying to help uh, reinforce Gordon McNeil, um, I, I got to within about six feet of his position. And, um, the next thing I know, I'm, I'm looking at Gordon McNeil's back as I'm running forward, and the next thing I know, I'm looking up at the sky and I'm thinking, what the hell happened? 
You know, I said, how did that happen? It was just, it was so strange, you know, because uh, most people don't have any reference to, to what it feels like to, to get shot, you know, and survive. You know, so I mean, it was all new to me. I mean, I was all just going through the uh, going through the discovery phase. You know, it's uh, I'm looking at McNeil's back and and in his cover area, and the next, I mean, literally like a blink of an eye, I'm I'm looking up at the blue sky, and I'm thinking, how did I get here? You know, and that is that is the most fascinating part of this of my experience. You know, it's I didn't realize I'd been shot. I felt nothing at all. I felt no. no sensation of pain at all you know and since that incident i've made it my mission in life to, to study up on this stuff i've, I've done research you know on, on uh, you know on different reports from different incidents and i have talked to hundreds of police officers and military folks that have been involved in, in incidents like this um especially people that have been wounded uh i've talked to people that have been shot stabbed exploded you know hit on the head with clubs or, or, or whatever, you know, bricks or whatever, and, uh, you know, uh, car crashes and stuff like that. And, and the majority of, uh, of the people that have experienced these, uh, these injuries, like a vast majority, like 85, you know, I, I don't think I can qualify 90%, but a good 85% of them have told me that when they were injured, they felt no pain whatsoever. Okay. The only indication that something was wrong was they either fell or when they're running, their leg gave out. Or in my case, I was shot in the, in the left arm. I, uh, it was a, a, a physiological reaction, I think, to the injury. You know, I, I fell back on my back. And, um, you know, I was looking up at the sky and I'm thinking, what the hell happened? You know, I didn't even know I'd been hit. It took me about a minute to, uh, you know, to figure out what had happened. With all his partners downed, severely wounded, likely dead, and facing his own mortality, Ed took matters into his own hands. Like I said, it took me about a minute of assessing what, what happened, because at the, at, the, at the same time, even though I'm on my back and I was looking up, I looked forward towards my feet, and I could see Gordon McNeil still in his position to cover, firing his revolver. And an interesting phenomenon happened. It's called slow motion, you know, because your, your senses speed up, but, you know, so you see everything um, a little slower. I mean, people don't actually stop and go into slow motion. It's your mind speeds up, which gives the illusion of everything moving slowly, you know. So, I'm, but it was, everything was in slow motion for me. And I saw Gordon McNeil get shot in the hand, and I, but I didn't understand it at the time, but I, I saw it happen. But then after a couple of seconds, I realized that he, his, his gun hand flew up over his head and back, you know, and then he brought his hand back with the, with the revolver still in his hand. And, and he looked at his hand, and then he uh, put the gun on, on the hood of the car again and continued to fire. I saw him fire two, two shots. At that point, he ran out of ammo, and he retreated to a better position of cover behind another car to reload. Okay, so in my mind, you know, it, it was like a minute. I mean, I honestly can't, couldn't tell you how long it was, but eventually uh, I, I was focused on survival. I wasn't so, you know, I, I, like I said, I, I didn't even know I had been wounded. 
finally, when my arm wasn't working, I mean, I, I just said, what the hell is wrong with my arm? You know, and it wasn't until I took my eyes off the, the point of threat, you know, the, or the threat points. Um, and I had to force my eyes away from those threat points to, to assess my arm, to figure out what the hell was going on. <clears throat> and uh, that was the first time I realized I'd been shot. Uh, when I looked at my my uh, my left arm, it looked like roadkill. I mean, it was worse than roadkill. It was, looked like a rabbit had been run over by a semi and just exploded, you know, inside out. I mean, it was just. I mean, at the time, it was so so foreign that it mentally, I refused to accept the fact that that was my arm. I said, "That is thing is just so horrific." I said, "That is not me," you know, and. Uh, <laughs> I said, that can't be me. So I actually had the force. Everything was forcing, you know, it, it was counterintuitive for me to take for me to take my eyes off the thread points. And it was counterintuitive for me to lay the shotgun across my chest so that I could free my, my uh, right hand to reach over to my left side and pick up the hand that was laying on, on, the, on the side uh, uh, next to me, uh, uh, beside me. And when I picked up the hand that was there, I pulled it up and I pulled my arm up and I said, holy shit, it's connected to me. (laughs) It wasn't connected by much. You know, I mean, it was like like a a couple of uh, layers of muscle in in the forearm because the the round completely shattered my my ulnar and and my, my radial bone. It just completely pulverized uh, two inches of, uh, of each bone, just turned it into powder and just blew it out of my body along with tissue and everything else, you know. So it was a big, big gap in my arm, you know. And like I said, it was only attached by a flap of skin and muscle on the bottom of my uh, my uh, forearm. And I, I, I kind of like shook it around, you know, to make sure it was still connected. You know, maybe, maybe it would pull apart, you know. <laughs> Then I could shake my own hand, you know. So <laughs> it was strange, but I shook it to make sure that it was connected. It was, and I'm thinking, "Holy shit, that's my arm!" So I threw it on the ground. I said, "I, I, I said that that explains what's going on." I said, "I've been shot," and I threw threw my hand on the ground and I ignored it, you know, because bullets were still flying over my head, you know. So I. I Readjusted the shotgun in my right my, my my right hand. I tucked it underneath my my uh, arm to to move it left and left and right. You know, scanning, scanning, scanning all the threat points. You know, because the bullets were still flying. I, I knew I'd been injured, but the bullets were still flying, and someone could still attack me and kill me. You know, and and I, obviously I didn't want that to happen. You know, so I, I continued to focus on the threats and ignored my injury. You know, and um, then. Eventually, from my assessments, the, the, the sound of the battle, the sound of the gunshots went from directly in front of my, my position. It, they slowly moved off to the right, slowly moved off farther to the right, and then slowly moved off all the way to the right. So uh, I, could, uh, I could sense the, the battle was moving in that direction, you know, because the gunfire was coming from different, from the sounds of the gunfire were coming from different positions. At that point in time, I decided, well, you know what, this this area that I'm in is, a, you know, I'm not accomplishing anything here, you know. So I decided to try to crawl from that position over towards the rear of uh, Gordon McNeil's car, where he had retreated to, to 
reload. And as I'm crawling back there, I, I can hear the, the, the gunfire again, moving to the right, moving to the right, moving to the right. And uh, when I got to the rear of McNeil's car, I saw that McNeil was on the, on the street wounded. I didn't know whether he was honestly dead or alive, okay, because I, 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 I really couldn't focus. I mean, I saw him, I focused on him, and I, I recognized him, and then I moved on to, to, the, to the threat, okay. And I, again, I'm crawling on my back using my shoulder blades and my heels to, to, to propel myself slowly, you know, like, like a crawling on your, like a military crawling on your back. And I could not get a clear view of the right side of the perimeter until I cleared the rear tires of Gordon's uh, Gordon's car. And when I cleared the, 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 the tires, it was absolutely devastating, absolutely devastating, because I saw uh, Jerry Dove was down, Ben Grogan was down, and John Hanlon was down, and I'm thinking, holy shit. That's three agents, and then McNeil's right next to me on the street. I said, that's four agents. Everybody's down. You know, and I'm thinking, wow, you know, I, I couldn't believe it. And I, at that point, uh, no one was moving. No one, no one was making any, any, you know, aggressive moves. I mean, I, I couldn't tell you whether they were, their hearts were beating or not beating. But it was devastating because I thought the worst. I thought they were down and they were all dead. And uh, it really, really uh, infuriated me. So, but when I so when I saw a pair of legs, the only pair of legs running around the scene, I said, "Well, it can't be the agents. It's got to be a bad guy." And uh, that's when I I aimed uh, one-handed. I aimed my shotgun at the at the pair of running legs. And um, again, I had the good fortune to, to score a hit on on the uh, the legs that were running by. You know, but at the time I didn't know it. I just kind of like took took a took a shot, took a chance on, on hitting him. You know. And maybe he would go down on the ground so that I, I'd slow him down enough so that I, I could, I could uh, re-rack the uh, run to the shotgun and, and use it on him a second time. But when I fired, nothing happened, you know. So, uh, you know, as it turned out, the, the pellets did hit him, but he didn't react the way I expected him to react by falling down. So um, then I, I took a position at the rear of McNeil's car and uh, I, I peeked around the side of the car, uh, again, assessing the situation, see what's going on. And again, I was going, you know, to time, time distortion, you know, slow motion, time distortion, and so on. Um, the, um, it was almost like magic, you know. I mean, to me, I mean, things were flowing pretty quickly. I mean, in my mind, you know, but even though things were, were slow motion, um, I couldn't believe that. From the time that I saw the um, the pair of legs running until I sat up at the at the back of Gordon McNeil's car, to me it was like 15 seconds. But in that time frame, when I peeked around the back of the car, I saw two unknown individuals in Jerry in uh, Ben Grogan's car, uh, and it became immediately obvious to me because they were looking at the steering column that they were trying to get away in that car. Okay, and the three agents were, were down around and behind that car. So the only way that car had to escape would, would be to, uh, to to drive over three agents. And again, you know, the fact that they were down, the, the fact that three agents were down, it made me mad, infuriated me. And the fact that uh, these two unknown bastards would 
dare drive over my friends, I mean, it just drove me over the edge. I mean, it's just like, no way. I mean, that, 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 is, uh, that is the impetus. That was the, the thing that forced me or commanded me to, to act as quickly and, uh, I guess, for lack of a better term, uh, quickly and savagely as possible to prevent these guys from moving the car. Because if they moved the car, they were going to run over agents. So I, I, I was trying to prevent them from moving the car. My, my four partners, all four of them, were down on the street. Okay, but the thing that drove me over the edge was that these two, these two bastards would even dare to think to drive over agents. Okay, because like I said, the only, their only avenue of escape was to back that car up. And the only way they could back that car up was to, to, to run over at least two maybe all three agents and I'm thinking no way I mean like I said that just just drove me into a savage into a, a savage response you know As, I mean it just really I mean it was like totally you know medieval or or caveman or whatever term you want to put on it you know it's uh, no way I mean I, I, I had to prevent them from, from uh, moving that car and that's when I fired the shotgun you know from the back of the car one handed you know it was enough to to, to make them stop but uh I, I could still see movement in in the car i mean it, it got them to stop fiddling around with the steering column you know but and uh i didn't know whether i, I was hoping the uh the, the guys and uh, the the two robbers inside of ben's car were, were dead but i, I wasn't 100 percent sure and actually i i was it was a 50 50 shot because i knew that the, the shotgun pellets being shot into a, a car like that, you know, there's a 50-50 chance that they'll get through, you know, so I was, I didn't have a warm, fuzzy feeling that, that they were dead, you know, but they had stopped. And it was at that point that I took my attention off the, the threat again, and I looked across the street at the two agents who were across the street, uh, Ben Grogan, uh, not, not Ben Grogan, uh, Gilbert Arantia and Ron Reiser, they had arrived after the shooting had started, and uh, they, they were supporting uh, fire from, from across the street, you know, and I knew they were there instinctively, but, you know, I, I honestly don't remember. They weren't there when I when the shooting started, but when I was crawling around, instinctively, I kind of saw them, but kind of like I knew that there was a good good spot, a good good guys there, but I didn't focus on them for, for long. When I was done with my shotgun, uh, when I emptied my shotgun, I knew that they were there, so that's when I took my attention from the rear, from my rear, and focused on them across the street. And I used my right hand, my good hand. I said, I waved at them, and I said, come on over, it's okay. And uh, them not knowing where the bad guys were, they were yelling at me to stay down, don't get up, you know, stay down. And I said, well, shoot, obviously, they don't know the bank, <laughs> they don't know the shooting's over, you know. So, And then it dawned on me, as I looked, I looked to the north, uh, of 82nd Avenue, and then I looked to the south, and I'm thinking, oh, shit. Uh, nobody knew the gunfight was over because the police had set up a, a perimeter uh, right, I mean, pretty close, right, like maybe 100 yards from the uh, from the shooting incident. And the perimeter, there was like 10 cop cars on the north and about, you know, five or six
oh, shit. I said, nobody knows the gunfight's over. I said, and, and I was getting weaker and weaker. I mean, I was like passing out. Like, I mean, my consciousness, you know, I'd be like focused on one thing, and then the next thing I know that my head had fallen down on my, my chin was on my chest. And then I'd wake up and I'd kind of startle myself awake, you know, like, don't fall asleep, you know, <laughs> you got to stay focused, you know, there's still a threat out here. So I felt, I mean, I not felt, I knew that uh, I was, I was uh, becoming more and more incapacitated. And then the, the incident went on so long that uh, you hear uh, people talk about the, the five stages of, of, uh, of death and illness. Uh, I, I went through those five stages of, of death and illness. You know, the first one, uh, I think the first, uh, I don't have it with me now, but if I remember, uh, one of the steps is denial. The other one is anger, bargaining. Uh, uh, I forget what the fourth one is. The fifth one is, the last one is acceptance. So I, was go I went through those five steps of, of uh, loss or, or death, you know, pretty quickly, uh, like in microseconds, I think, you know, but uh, I, I came to the realization that uh, today was a day, you know, I'm thinking, oh, you know, I mean, I'm thinking, you know, hey, I don't want to die, you know, but I, I, at some point in time during the shooting, I went through the five stages of uh, bargaining and, and everything else, you know. Um, Depression. The fourth one's depression. I didn't go through any depression. Um, the um, I went through the, the the denial, the anger, and the bargaining, and then I, I just jumped right to acceptance. I mean, I, there was no depression in in, in, in my case, and uh, uh, acceptance. When I when I got to the acceptance part, I I accepted the fact that I was you know like ninety nine point nine percent going to die. You know so. At that point in time, you know, I, I tell people I became the most dangerous man on the scene because, you know, I accepted death, you know, but I, I, I still function, you know, I, even though I was, you know, my chin was falling down to my chest, you know, like falling asleep, you know, passing out, I still had enough energy. I said, well, you know, if I'm going to die, I'm going to take these two bastards with me. I'm going to make sure that they're dead. Okay, because I, I, as I mentioned uh, a couple of minutes before, the shotgun rounds into the car wasn't 100%, you know, there was no 100% surety that they were dead. They had stopped moving around. They had stopped trying to, to you know, start the car and, and back it up. But I wasn't sure that they were dead, dead, you know. So uh, at that point, I decided, well, I'm going to do several things at once. Number one, I'm going to stand up as much as I didn't want to and physically couldn't because I was like, you know, my energy was, was depleted. I want to stand up and show everybody, you know, the, the, the 200 cops and firemen that were <laughs> around the scene, I want to stand up and show them that it's safe. And number two, you know, maybe when they realize it's safe, they can come in and, and give us aid, okay? And then the second thing that I wanted to do was that I knew that I was going to die, but I wanted to make 100% sure that the, these two guys that had shot and killed my friends and me were, were dead, were also dead. I mean, no no trial for these guys, you know. I mean, I say that now, but at the time, you know, I wasn't thinking trial. I was just thinking absolute, you know, total savage vengeance, you know. And uh, as I'm moving 
a walking dead man. You know, I mean, what are you going to do to me? What are you, how are you going to scare me? Oh, we'll show you the jail. We'll, we'll, we'll put you in the electric chair. You know, but, uh, dude, I'm dead. <laughs> so, so I moved forward, you know, but it wasn't a total reckless abandon. You know, I mean, I still remember tactics. I mean, I stood up and I looked around, make sure looking for a threat. And I remember tactics. I mean, I was moving. I took two steps forward. I, I brought the revolver up. I found the front side, found the rear side, found the side picture, and you know had a good uh, shooting position. Fired, boom, two, took two steps forward, boom, two more, two more, two more, two more, until I was right at the door of the car, and I had shot these guys. Um, I uh, shot the driver once in the head, but it ricocheted off, off his forehead, and I shot him uh, with my last round. I shot him in the chest. And it went into his spinal cord and severed his spinal cord. And the driver, whom I was worried the most about, I put three three shots into his head and neck. So at that point in time, you know, I I felt that my mission had had been accomplished. You know, these guys were were toast. You know, uh, and at that point, the agents across the street, uh, Gilbert Arantia and Ron Reiser, came up to support me, and they told me, "Hey, you had to put your gun away. It's over." You know, and I. Ed speaks about his partners and the bravery they all displayed that day. Um, to not to reassess to assess my position. 
situation, assess my injuries, assess the situation, move, and I like to call it a flanking movement, even though it, it, it was kind of a flanking movement, but it wasn't, you know, it was like more like a direct frontal movement. But um, they allowed me enough time to, to be able to regroup and formulate a plan to, to, to take the attack right to them. You know, I, I closed I closed the distance between my position and their position that allowed me to um, to to act. But without their without them buying me time, okay, I couldn't have done what I did. You know, so in that regard, you know, the agents, you know, Ben and Jerry made the ultimate sacrifice. You know, but everybody, you know, stood their ground. The role of God and faith in Ed's life ultimately showed him that he may have been spared because his work to help others was not yet complete. It's always difficult for me to talk about this because, you know, you never know your audience, you know. And I, I think most most cops, at least from my experience and maybe from yours too, most cops are, cops are funny, you know. They won't come right out and say, hey, I don't believe in God. I mean, I, I think 99% of us believe in, in, in God or, or a higher power, or a higher being, the great spirit, as the Native, Native Americans call him, you know. The great spirit, I believe, I believe in it. I have no doubt. I mean, you can call him whatever you want. You can call him Jesus or God or Yahweh or whatever. But there is a great spirit out there, I know, uh, in my heart, you know, I know. Uh, and... I know for a fact that if you look at the incident, I should have been dead, shot and killed by the bad guys and and a couple of cases by police officers who didn't know who I was. Okay, I, 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 I should have been shot eight different times, additional times, and killed. Uh, there was an incident that happened towards the very end of the shootout that... Uh, Sometimes I forget to tell people other times, you know, when I, when I remember, I tell them, you know, when I stood up and I started moving into the car to, that the, the Platmatics were trying to escape in, the, the FBI car, there were two, two uh, Metrodate cops that had come in to help Gordon McNeil. So they were, they were in the middle of the street helping Gordon McNeil, trying to administer first aid. One was administering first aid, the other, the other was covering kind of like he was looking at me, looking at the car, and uh, they asked Gordon, they tried to get Gordon to tell him, you know, because Gordon was conscious, but he could, he was paralyzed. They asked him, who are the good guys? Who are the bad guys? And he said, the the bad guys are, you know, cause he really couldn't tell him, you know, because he didn't know where they were, you know, but they said, hey, how about the, the, the big guy in the red jacket here? They said, and he said, oh, he's a good guy, he's a good guy. So, I mean, that, that, that helped me survive a, a few, few, few seconds longer. But the interesting part is towards the end, okay, here, here's two, two Dade County, Metro Dade County detectives on the street, and they knew I was a good guy. But I didn't know that other uh, Metro Dade uh, County police officers had responded, and they were at the corner of the house the, the duplex that we were in front of, two officers had responded to that corner, and I never saw them. Of course, they were behind cover. You know, I wasn't really looking for them, you know, but they saw a an unknown Hispanic male who is bleeding from, from his forehead. He's totally covered in blood, pull out a revolver, and he starts moving into towards a, uh, a sedan, a four-door sedan, 
inside, okay? And there is a, a police light on the dashboard flashing, okay? So you know that's a police car, and you know there's two white males sitting in the front seat, and there's a Hispanic male outside the vehicle charging them, firing into, the, into their car, Okay, and I spoke to one of the officers who responded. He said, hey, I had you center mass, he said, with my, with my revolver. He said, and I actually had the, the, the hammer halfway back on the gun. I was going to shoot you right in the center of the chest, he said. But then I, I wondered, I knew the two date officers that were behind you on the street. It was uh, Leo and, and uh, Marty, Marty and Leo. He said, I knew them, but I didn't know you. They were closer to you, and they weren't shooting you. So I figured, what the heck's going on here? You know. So, and then he said, "Hey, you know what? If if Marty and Leo aren't shooting this guy, maybe I shouldn't shoot him either." <laughs> but that just gives you a, an example of how many times I could have been killed. Additional, additionally to to the the two times that I was shot. You know, and I have no 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 doubt whatsoever. And you know, I'll tell your audience, you know, that I'm telling you, most of the angels and saints in heaven were working overtime to, to protect me. And I'm telling you because, like I said, I I should have been killed, you know, eight times over, easy, easy. You know, so uh, and then one of my aunts, um, at, at like a, a couple of years after the incident, you know. Uh, I went back home to, to, to visit and stuff, and I, I got uh, got to talking to one of my aunts, you know, and, and she was all, you know, teary-eyed, you know, she hadn't seen me in several years, you know, so she said, oh, my God, I'm so glad you survived the incident, you know, and she said, oh, my, you know, my God, you know, she said, I had a dream about your dad, because my dad had, had passed away before the incident, you know, uh, a few years, you know, uh, three years before, and... Uh, she said, I had a dream, you know, I had a dream. And I said, well, you know, tell me, what's going on, Ed? You know, uh, she said, I dreamed that, you know, that your father came down from heaven. And during the shooting incident, he actually, you know, reached down and he moved the muzzle of the weapon of one of the guys that was shooting at you. And he missed you. <laughs> and I'm thinking to myself, oh, boy, you know, I mean. You can't doubt that, you know. I, I cannot, I cannot debate that, you know, because who's to say that maybe that dream it didn't happen? You know what I'm saying? I mean, if you believe, if you believe, you got to believe. You know, you just can't believe. You know, pick and choose. You know, cherry pick your beliefs. You know, you either have to believe 100 percent or you don't believe. You know, so, but uh, that kind of brought the point home. You know, uh, it's like wow. You know, I'm, I mean, I have no doubt that. Some angels and saints were, at least were down there, you know, helping me bob and weave or <laughs> zig and zag, you know, <laughs> or maybe moving people's muzzles off center. <laughs> Instead of getting shot in the center of the forehead, I was shot to the side, you know, so I mean, who knows? Who knows? But no, I mean, I, I believe. I mean, I've always been, uh, I've always been a God-fearing man. I always went, to, uh, as a young man, I, I I went to church every Sunday, and then, then I joined the military, and it became much more difficult, you know. So, but I, I'm, a, I'm a hundred percent believer, you know, and I, I have no, no doubts that uh, uh, all my friends and family say, hey, you know, God spared you for a reason, you know, and, and maybe you haven't uh, fulfilled that 
decision yet. You know, so I, I have no doubt. I think you know uh, my 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 uh, uh, career or or my my uh, my route into training and helping to train and and, and sharing my story with other people, especially law enforcement officers, has um, has had some benefit. You know, because I've had people tell me. Uh, before the internet, they used to write me letters saying, "Hey, you know what? I went to one of your one of your conferences and one of your training lectures, and something you said during that lecture I, I took with me." And he said, "And that helped me survive my incident." He said, "And, and I, he said uh, these officers would tell me, and it has been more than one. It's been scores of officers tell me this. Hey, something you said, something I took away from your lectures helped me survive." You know, and I'm thinking, wow, I mean, you, you, you can't buy that. You just cannot buy that. Ed provides survival training to law enforcement officers and their agencies, and he has authored a book that describes the events of his shootout in much greater detail. It is titled, The FBI Miami Firefight, Five Minutes That Changed the Bureau. You can contact Ed to discuss training opportunities or order a signed copy of his book at www. Dot edmoreles.com. That's E-D-M-I-R-E-L-E-S dot com. It can also be found on Amazon. Copland is produced for those courageous men and women whose alarm clock goes off every day. They put their feet on the ground, buckle on gear, and kiss their families goodbye with no guarantee they will ever come home. They go willingly, facing predators and violence on behalf of good and innocent people who simply want to live safe, peaceful lives. Thank you for listening. God bless and go be amazing.